bow in prayer, shall we? Father, we look to you for our strength right now. We are so grateful to gather like this and to reach for our Bibles. We need a word from you. We desire a word from you. We need your strength and your help to discern your will from your word and to live as salt and light in a dark and dying world. Strengthen us in our walk today through the fellowship of believers and through the interaction with your word. Father, I pray that uh, your Holy Spirit would use the word now to strengthen us, um, to bring knowledge to us and insight and discernment in every way. We commit ourselves to you at this time to accomplish your purposes in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn once again in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 and our topic today in the teaching of Christ in this ongoing Sermon on the Mount study as we make our way through the entire book of Matthew eventually, the topic is retaliation. Retaliation. You know retaliation. In fact, we love retaliation. Retaliation, you know, is when someone does something to you and you make them pay to teach them a lesson. We love, uh, we love movies about retaliation, don't we? It's a great theme. This is uh, Clint Eastwood, outlaw Josie Wales, right? Minding his own business, plowing the ground, growing the corn, taking care of his family... And all of a sudden, the outlaws come rushing through, burn the homestead, pillage, rape, murder, and the rest of the movie is, get them. Track them down and make them pay. Right? It's good stuff. Man, it's good stuff. And we really want them to pay, don't we? It's Harrison Ford, right? Working your way to the top of the ladder. You're running the bank. You're big in business. You're, you're incredibly successful. And then bandits hack their way through your software, get into your personal world, hold your family hostage. But not this guy. He's going to find them, track them down, and he's going to make them pay. And he's not just going to get his wife and his kids back. He's going to blow them up. He's going to remove them off the face of the earth because that's what they deserve. That's retaliation, right? And then we turn to Matthew chapter 5 in our Bibles and we have this effeminate teaching. We have this pedantic, un-American Jesus looking at us and talking to us about a whole new way to think about our enemies and those who desire to do evil against us. And we say to Jesus, me? Love who? I don't think so. Our text today is the combination of our final two um, antithesis. Remember, we've been studying this section in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus, with great authority in his deity, 
is quoting from the Old Testament, but then he holds up his word as an authority as to the interpretation of that and as to the meaning of that. So he quotes the Old Testament, which was very familiar to his audience, both all of the Jewish audience and then the teachers of the law, the Pharisees and the scribes who were uh, no doubt there in attendance as well. And this was, um, I'm sure, a large group. We've talked about this. And in our Bibles, we have three short chapters that... that um, entail what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And if you're new with us, we've been at this some time, but in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. It is a sermon that Jesus preached. Now, we can read these three chapters in about 13 minutes. Probably this message was about three hours long. And so we've got Jesus condensed down and to the point. And he's in a section where he keeps quoting in the Old Testament and he says, you have heard it said. And then he quotes from the Old Testament and everybody in the audience is thinking, yes, yes, I got it. They got it. Ever since they were children, they've memorized this stuff. Ever since they were children, they've sat under the rabbis and the teachers. And you need to understand that not only did they know the Old Testament law, but in, in this time and place... Uh, the Jewish teachers took Jewish tradition and the rabbis taught tradition and even oral tradition that was passed on from generation to generation, even from the time of Moses, as to the interpretation of the law. And sometimes it became something it was never intended to be. And so part of what Jesus is doing is he's straightening out their misunderstanding because through the generations, uh, some of the oral tradition has been written down. Other parts have been written down as to the interpretation and they have taught how this is to be understood. Maybe you've heard the word the Mishnah. It's a writing down of, of these traditional understandings and, and ways of interpreting and living out the law. And one of the things that happened was these teachings became very in-depth and sometimes they became very skewed from what was at the heart and the spirit of what was given in Mosaic law. So he's quoting scripture and as we'll see today, sometimes this this tradition gets intertwined. And so as Jesus quotes these things, his audience very much would have understood what he's talking about. And so today, because he's talking about um, those who would do evil against us, as well as our enemies, I see that as um, coming together with, with some uh, companionship there. Those who would do evil, those who are my enemies. We're going to take both uh, of these final two of the six, you have heard it said, but I say to you, and Jesus had the authority to look at the audience and say, this is what it really means. God in the flesh, interpreting scripture for us. Let's read our text. It's Matthew chapter 5. It begins with verse 38. We go to verse 48. And you're going to see that a big part of the theme is this topic of retaliation or how do I respond what is a proper response if it's not retaliation, which has negative overtones or damaging overtones? How is it that I respond when evil is done to me? How is it when someone that I categorize as an enemy crosses my path? How do I, if I am a follower of Christ, deal with this? Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, Jesus says, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. 
And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard it said, that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You can see everybody's head nodding. Yep, yep, we've heard it, we know it. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And all of a sudden it gets really quiet. So that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. For He makes His Son to rise on the evil and on the good. And He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And the air goes out of the place. You've got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me. Jesus wants me to turn the other cheek. We don't do that. You know, one of the things that's very helpful in understanding this passage of Scripture, as has been the case all along, and we've touched on these things, as I've been reminding you, is the importance of understanding the historical and cultural framework in which these words are said. Remember, as the audience sits there on the hillside and Jesus teaches... It's the first time they've heard it, and Jesus very much understands his audience. He knows what his audience understands. And when his audience hears these words, I would suggest that they hear them a good bit different than we do in our culture in North America today, 2,000 plus years later. So the first thing I want to do is take just a minute, and I want to clip off some of the ways that you need to know what his audience understood so that we can understand it, so that we can receive this in its proper context. Because right away, this this forces us to ask a lot of questions. Is, Is Jesus teaching a complete passivity here? Is it, is it totally right that we're just to let our enemies just run and rule over us? Should we even have a police force? Should we have an army? Do I defend myself if somebody breaks in the house? We have all kinds of questions. Another question that occurs is, is how come, how come in the Old Testament, and I really like this, I could get a rock and my slingshot, and I could drill that dude between the eyes, and then I could cut his head off, and I could take care of wickedness. And how come in the New Testament, Jesus looks at us and he says, if you want to be sons of your heavenly father and daughters of your heavenly father, you love your enemy and you pray for them. Wow. Well, one of the things that will help us to to determine with some level of accuracy how his audience heard these words and what it was that Jesus was teaching is to understand culturally the grid through which they receive these words, and the historical context. So let's talk about that. Number one, you need to recognize that his audience knew these words. Okay, I've already referenced that. But when we read, and you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, most of us probably say, is that in the Bible? Or is that the Code of Hammurabi? What is that? And, and his audience would have immediately understood 
exactly what he was talking about. And in fact, since childhood, they had memorized these passages and these laws. And let me show you that this is very much right from the Bible. And in fact, it's an incomplete quote. But at least three times in the Bible, this is quoted in the Old Testament given in Mosaic Law. For our purposes this morning, let's just look at one, and that's Exodus 21, verse 23 and 24. Exodus chapter 21, turn there. While you're turning, if you take notes, you might want to compare Leviticus 24.20. Leviticus 24.20, and you might want to compare Deuteronomy 19.21. It's, it all here says the same thing. And so as the audience listens and they hear an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, we kind of say, what, what was that a little bit, that, you know, that kind of judicial kind of system? Here's where it comes from. Um, and in fact, was imp- it was indeed in the Code of Hammurabi, which was recorded about a hundred years before Mosaic law, and many Bible students think that even before the Code of Hammurabi, that that different societies had implemented this equal justice system whereby the punishment meted out was equal with the crime. Now let's read Exodus chapter 21 and uh, verse 24. Look what he says. Let's start out in verse 23. But if there is harm, then you shall pay a life for a life. Here it is. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Okay, go back to Matthew chapter 5. Now this is um, really a pretty good, logical, fair, judicial system of meeting out a punishment for a crime. In the Latin, some of you may be aware that it's called, it's called lex talionis. Lex talionis. And it's the idea of equality whereby eye for eye, tooth for tooth, it's not that difficult to understand. You poke my eye, my eye out, you get your eye poked out. And one of the things that's good about this is that it regulates the sinful hearts of men. Because here's how it really works, right? You poke my eye out, I rip your face off. Right? You knock out one of my teeth, I'm knocking out six of your teeth. I wasn't doing anything to you, bud, and you come up and get in my space, I will make you pay. And now we're with the Hatfields and McCoys or something. Because, wait a minute, I just knocked out one of your teeth, teeth, and you knocked out six of mine, now I'm going to burn your barn down and kill your cattle. And next thing you know, we don't even remember what we're fighting about, but the whole community is in flames. And so this comes along and it makes a a reasonable, fair system. If you knock out someone's tooth, you get your tooth knocked out. And I kind of picture these guys in the judicial system. They must have had tools. (laughs) The judge determines what he's going to do. Okay, put your head up against the wall and the guy like... Knocks his tooth out with a pool stick or something. It's like, okay, you can go home. Guy's holding his mouth. Off he goes. And he says to himself, I'm never doing that again. And so it's a pretty good system. But whoever thought of this idea that 
Okay, so I'm raised up to understand that there's like an equality here. What you do to me, I can do to back to you. And in my heart, I really wish I was doing more than that. And then Jesus comes and interrupts that and says, no, we don't do that. We come in underneath that person and we allow them. Hit me on one side of the face, you can hit me on the other side of the face. So one of the things you need to understand is that, that this code of limited retaliation was understood by the audience, and they understood that it was based in Scripture, but they understood it to be absolutely a system of fairness, and so it would have been a bit shocking to hear that we couldn't be fair under Jesus' new code. Second thing you need to understand is that in verse uh, 39, this slap on the cheek, is that in their culture, they would have understood exactly what he was talking about, and almost all Bible commentaries are in agreement on this, that Jesus on purpose said that he slaps you on your right cheek. That that immediately put in the audience's mind with clarity what was going on. It was... It was not, see, when we read it, we think of this, right? We think, we think, bam, and now I have to turn the cheek? What are we talking about here? Now, what he's talking about here, this context is probably not talking about someone who actually means to do you significant bodily harm. I mean, they may want to make you sting a little bit, but it's much more in the category of an insult, The idea of the hand to the right cheek, predominantly most men are right-handed, most people are right-handed, and the idea was that it was a backhander across the face which would hit you in the right cheek. And the idea there in the listening audience was they could picture that. You see, we're going to talk about it a little bit more in just a minute, but remember that they're in the context of being under Roman authority. Galilee at this time, they were under Roman rule. There was not a freedom. There was a longing for a Jewish king, but they didn't have it. And they had to be, they were subjugated to Rome. They had to pay unfair taxes. They had Roman soldiers walking the street. And everybody in the audience could see a Roman soldier giving the back of his hand to the right cheek of some Jewish guy who got in his way. Or possibly it was even a practice that was implemented even uh, with the young people growing up. I hear great stories of some of you growing up in parochial school and how some of the sisters had incredible means of discipline with their big stick and, and what they would do and how they would keep order. And in some of these rabbinical schools, you mouth off, you get a hand to the cheek. Backhand to the cheek. And so in the mind of the listener, they understood immediately what was happening. And then for Jesus to say, turn the other cheek, men, as the hand came back the other direction, it was open. But instead of something that is, that is being inflamed here, something that is, has an accelerant put to it by me lashing out or swinging back at you and creating a, a stir, a hubbub, that we're actually in decline because the hand on the way back, open, probably didn't hurt as much as the knuckles on the way out. So the whole idea here is this is much less about a personal attack to do you harm or to kill you, and it's much more about an insult. So this is probably as good a time as anywhere in this message for me to say a couple things about what I think Jesus is not saying here. Okay? And this is a big subject. And we've talked about this not too long ago. What are some of the criteria whereby 
I'm allowed to fight back. Let me just say that I do not believe that what Jesus is teaching here is a complete pacifism. I believe that when you look at other passages of Scripture, Romans 13, for example, is one clear one, that we should have police forces against evil. Jesus is going to talk about, um, right here in verse 39, do not resist the one who is evil. So should, should the community just stand by and let evil rule? No, they should not. That government absolutely has the call and right given by God to keep peace and to protect their populace. So police force with strength, armies with strength to protect a country or a nation from evil, and there is evil in the world, has a responsibility given by God to suppress evil even with the sword. I also think that this does not talk about random acts of violence or evil whereby you're lying in bed, the patio door shatters, and you realize that wickedness has come in your house. has nothing to do with the name of Christ. It has nothing to do with your testimony for Christ. It has nothing to do with an insult. It has everything to do with the fact that they want to rape and pillage and do evil to the core. You take granddad's double barrel shotgun and give them both at the same time. You have a responsibility as the man of your home to protect your children and your wife. I think what Jesus is talking about here has everything to do with the normal exchange of everyday life where people of the light, children of God, Christians, people who are followers of Christ engage and have interaction with people of darkness, and it happens every day, and as you stand out as a testimony for Christ, and as it becomes known to to the people around you that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that they insult you, or they're disgusted with you, or they put you down, that you don't retaliate. I think it has much more to do with an insulting type situation. I don't think it has to do near as much with bodily harm. I will say, though, there are occasions, both in church history and in everyday life occurrences, that people have encountered more in other parts of the world, even now, where evil is oppressing righteousness, where at the moment God gives a special grace and a discernment and an insight to his people that this is how they are to interact with these wicked people who have assaulted them or taken them hostage or are involved in raping them or pillaging them. And they believe at that moment, and God gives a grace and an understanding that at this point my job is to love my enemy. Almost always, though, it's in the context of the testimony for Christ here. Thirdly, I want you to know that his audience would have known completely, exactly, precisely what he was talking about when he said you can sue someone for their tunic or their shirt, but you don't sue one for your, but don't, but don't sue for the coat. But if you get sued for your shirt or if you get sued for your tunic, The idea here is that if you're a follower of Christ, you have the kind of mindset whereby after the decision is made, you walk up to them and you slip out of your overcoat and you hand them that too. Whoa. And here's what the audience would have understood that we don't understand, the cultural context. That it was actually, in this culture and at this time, not uncommon 
It was a practice whereby, especially among poor people who had almost nothing, that the shirt that they wore and the coat that they wore were some of their main possessions. And I have seen this in eastern Africa, in Malawi. This one shirt, one pair of shorts, maybe a white shirt that's ragged out to put on on Sunday. No shoes. That's all they have. What are you going to sue them for? If they've offended you or they've, they've committed a crime against you, what are you going to do? And so the judge would mete out this justice whereby they were fined for their shirt. And you had to give up your shirt. But actually, and the audience in Jesus' day knew that in, in, in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy, it says, but you're not allowed to take somebody's coat. And if you take their coat, you have to give it back to them before nightfall. Because the outer coat was really important because that was what people used for their blanket. Or they would freeze to death at night. They were so cold. It was so uncomfortable. And so now you're giving away something that is very important to you. And in fact, it was not the practice of the court to sue somebody, to come up with a a, a verdict and sue them for their tunic and their coat. But you could sue them for their tunic, but not for their coat. They wouldn't do that. And so that's why it brought great meaning to the audience to realize, oh, you sue me for my shirt, but I'm going to go up and give you my coat. How that would be something that's dramatic. In our day, in our time, sue me for my shirt. Go ahead if you want to. I have 129 shirts. I just counted them. Sue me for my shirt if you want. Which one do you want? Doesn't mean anything to us. But to his audience, it absolutely means something. Fourthly, you need to understand that, as I've said, that with this time of Roman occupation, that if... If a Roman soldier particularly, but even people who were above you in the caste system, wanted you to carry something and a beast of burden wasn't around, they could use you for a beast of burden. You would have to carry their load. This is a little bit the picture of Simon of Cyrene on the way of suffering when our Lord has his cross on his back, right? And the Roman soldiers are scourging him and snapping at him and they're pushing him up this way and Jesus stumbles and falls and he looks over at Simon he's carry his cross that was widely practiced that was something that you were allowed to in fact it was so widely practiced and the audience would have completely understood this that you could force somebody to go and the idea was probably in our mind it's a mile that's the way it's translated in English was the idea of a thousand steps You could go a thousand steps and that's all you were obligated. And the idea was to keep the Roman soldiers in check a little bit so that people, so that they could all get along. And so that the the Jewish community that was subject, subject to Rome would not be unsettled all the time. They would be irritated, but they would put up with it. And they took it right to the wire. And so they knew when they heard Jesus say, if somebody asks you to take their burden for a mile, then... You, followers of me, go two miles. Finally, and fifthly, you need to understand as we unfold this passage, that when we get into the part about where it says, you have heard it said, verse 43, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You need to know that hate your enemy was really a logical outcome of Jewish logic and tradition. Nowhere in Scripture does it say to hate anybody. It does say to love your enemies, or to love your neighbor, excuse me, in the Old Testament. That's not just a New Testament statement, but it does say to love your neighbor. 
And so in the Jewish mind, when you defined who your neighbor was, the conclusion of many thoughtful rabbis was that my neighbor is only my Jewish community, not the Gentiles who we despise. And in fact, the Gentiles, that's part of the Canaanites, that's part of the community that in the Old Testament, Joshua and Moses used to kill those people. And in fact, we don't want anything to do with those people. We'll kill those people. And I don't have anything to do with them, but in the, if it was a Jew, we'll take care of them. You have the story of the Good Samaritan, for example, in the New Testament, where high-ranking Jewish religious leaders would go right by somebody because they weren't Jewish. And they weren't who they represented very well. And so they would say, ah, get out of here. I'm not going to touch that person. But if it was a Gentile, then they didn't have to love them. And in fact, in, there's even imprecatory psalms. You've heard that word? An imprecatory psalm. David prayed them quite a bit. An example, if you want to look one up later, is Psalm 7113. Psalm 7113. It's where he prays for the destruction of his accusers. To be put to shame. To be con consumed by God's wrath. It's like praying, Lord, would you kill my neighbor, please? He's driving me crazy. And there's examples of that in the Psalms, where David would pray that against the wicked who oppressed against him. And so this kind of mindset was there. And so the logical outcome became, you have heard it said to love your neighbor. Well, that's a Jewish person, but we can hate anybody else. After the first century, there's one recorded rabbi's teaching that is written down. And one of his rules was that if you saw a Gentile in the sea drowning, you didn't have to do anything or risk your life to help him. Let him drown. But if it was a Jew, then it was your neighbor and you were therefore obligated to do everything you could to try to reach them and save them. So there's the cultural historical context. The idea that when we hear these words, we're picturing things a little bit differently. His audience very much would have pictured them. But I still would suggest to you this is very much what I call backwards teaching. The backwards teaching of Christ. And I look at it and I say, I don't like this. Let's take a look at it. First reason I don't like it, number one, is because it's unnatural. Verse 39, it's unnatural. You have heard it said that... An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Okay, I'm good with that. But I say to you, verse 39, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. I don't like that. It stings when he slaps me on the cheek. It's very irritating. It's humiliating. No, it doesn't even make my nose bleed. No, it doesn't knock me down. No, it doesn't put me in the hospital. It doesn't even cause me to get stitches. But it just embarrasses me. It humiliates me. I don't like being treated like that. I think in our culture, I was trying to think what might be the equivalent of that moment that Jesus is talking about this backhand across the right cheek. And I think the closest thing that we could relate to it would be when somebody's arguing, maybe it's like um, a Baseball manager comes ripping out of the dugout and the umpires just made a terrible call and they're arguing and arguing and kicking dirt on each other. And right before the ump throws him out, the, the manager or a player, and they get in big trouble for this, they, and they spit in his face. It's like, oh. Somebody's arguing and they spit in your face. Don't you want to just, yeah, you do. To be spit in the face. That's the idea here. Psst. You're so ignorant. I despise you. You're despicable. I'm putting you down. I'm insulting you. 
And that's what Jesus is talking about. And it's unnatural. Everything in my flesh wants to react and pay back. And Jesus says, if they spit on your right cheek, turn and let them spit on your left cheek. It's unnatural. Second thing I want you to see is it's very uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable. He says in verse 40, And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Do you mean that I am going to be personally uncomfortable all night long until I can come up with another coat? That's right. Go up to that person and heap coals of fire on their head. Show them the love of Christ. Show them a compassion. Give them your coat. That makes me uncomfortable. Obeying Christ is often very uncomfortable. Have you ever noticed that? Thirdly, I want you to see that it's even, in a sense, in my mind, this backward teaching of Christ, unacceptable. It's, it's just unacceptable. Look at verse 41. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. But you say that's totally unacceptable because I'm not strong enough to do that. I'm too weak. I will be so tired by the time. I can barely carry that load. That's right. In your fatigue and in your weakness, honor Christ and look at them and say, let me carry it a bit farther. People hated that practice. In that day and time, historically speaking, they despised it when some Roman soldier barked at them and said, pick up my bags and walk with them. Say, pick up your own stinking bags. Jesus said, no, no. Pick them up, carry them, and then carry them twice as far as they want. It's pretty unacceptable. Fourthly, I want you to see that it's, it's unaffordable. It's unaffordable. Look what he says. Give to the one who begs, verse 42, and from, who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now it's going to cost me money to obey Jesus. I got two bucks in my pocket. I can buy a Mountain Dew for $1.69. And I'm really looking forward to it. And now I'm going to give this guy a buck and I don't even care about this guy. Jesus said, no, you don't understand. You are different than everybody else. And think about how that matches with love your neighbor as yourself. You see, if you really love your neighbor as yourself, the hottest day, the hardest working day you've ever had Bale and hay in southern Michigan, sun beating down, and we get to stop by Smitty's store, and I'm going to buy a Mountain Dew. And I only have enough money for one, and that's all I've been thinking about for the last three hours. Picking up straw off the ground. Buy that Mountain Dew, and give it to your buddy, and be just as happy that he got it and you didn't. That's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Most of us really stink at that. We can't afford that kind of love. I want you to see that it's unparalleled. Nobody teaches like this. Look at verse 43. Um, the idea of, of give to those who beg, give to those who beg and give to those who want to borrow. I don't think, by the way, that that's an, an abuse of sloth or laziness. The Bible gives clear instruction that somebody who refuses to work, who is capable to work, isn't supposed to be cared for by the community. They are supposed to be hungry enough to want to work. And so the idea here is in the natural exchange of life, when you encounter somebody who for any number of circumstances is in need and they need to borrow from you or they, they are begging for their sustenance and it has some sense of legitimacy, Jesus says, you do this. 
But this is unparalleled teaching, verse 43 and 44. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, they really never heard in Scripture to hate your enemy. We've already talked about that in the cultural historical context. Verse 44, but Jesus says to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. The idea here is crazy. Nobody has taught like this. At the least, it's some kind of a level playing field of eye for eye, tooth for tooth, wound for wound. But Jesus comes along and no other teacher taught like this. Muhammad sure didn't. And don't be deceived by the common talk of the day that Islam is some kind of a peace-loving religion Muhammad taught to take a knife and cut the throat of the infidels. It's the way it is. Jesus didn't teach like that. Jesus was dramatically and totally opposite of that. There was nothing they could relate to in their culture or their mindset. And I dare say, in our culture and mindset, we can't relate to this. It's so unnatural. It's uncomfortable. It's unacceptable. It costs us money. This is just unparalleled teaching. I don't like it. In Leviticus 19.18 was the golden rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus reteaches that in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 22, 36, 37, right in there, Jesus says, what's the greatest command? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And the second command is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, I get that. Jesus is now raising the bar in this unparalleled teaching that my enemy is now part of the community of the neighborhood. But I say to you, verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now look at verse 45. It gets even more difficult. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. What's he talking about? He says, you want to be like God and you want to reflect the character of God in your life. Look what he says. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The idea is that when God wakes up in the morning and he allows the sun to come up, all things... We're made by Him and all things are held together by Him. All systems work by Him. And the sun comes up. There are people who have done wickedness and horrible things all night long who get to be warmed by the sun. There are people who have done wickedness and horrible sinful things all night long whose corn in their garden is going to grow from the sun and the rain that God gives just like the righteous people. God doesn't send lightning bolts the next morning and whack the sinner. He blesses them with the sunshine. He blesses them with the rain. It's called common grace. That when God looks out across the world, He sees the righteous. He sees the wicked. But in His common grace, He lets the sun shine on all. He lets the rain fall on all. Who are we to be selective if our Heavenly Father blesses them with that kind of common grace? You want to reflect your Father as a son then pray for those who persecute you. For if you love, verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Tax collectors, the lowest scum of the earth of that day. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Anybody can do that, he's saying. 
Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Even the pagans, people who don't know God, people who are not followers of Christ, they love people who love them. They say hi to their brothers. Anybody can do that, but that's not who you are is what we're supposed to get out of that. And then finally, number six, it's unattainable. Look at verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here's what you're supposed to think. Here's what the audience is stunned. The audience is sitting there and they're thinking to themselves, I can't do this. I cannot do this. I don't have it in me. It is so unnatural to turn the cheek when he spits on me. I don't have it in me to give right now or pray to that for that enemy. And that's exactly what you're supposed to say. And you have to recognize, as Jesus says, you therefore, verse 48, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Where does that kind of perfection come from? Listen, you cannot find that kind of perfection in yourself. You can't go to church enough times. You can't take enough showers. You can't do enough good deeds. You cannot do anything that you would one day stand before God and say, Ta-da! I finally made it up to your level of perfection. You can't do it. And that's the whole point Jesus is making. And there's only one place you get that kind of perfection. And it's at the cross. And you go to the cross and you fall on your face and you pound your breast and you say to yourself, Woe is me. I am such a filthy, dirty, rotten sinner. Even on my best day, when they spit on me on my right cheek, I want to not turn the left cheek and I want to give it back to them. And I come before God, a holy God, before whom I am not fit to stand or sit or speak. And I say, please forgive me. For I am a sinner. Have mercy on me. And where does that mercy come from? It comes from God's love through Christ. And that's why he sent Jesus. He loves sinners. And even while we were yet sinners, Christ then goes to the cross and dies for our sin so that we can come to the cross, that divine intersection where a holy God and sinful people meet and come to terms, and the terms are that Jesus carries your sin to the cross, and through faith, you can receive a righteousness that is not your own, that is Christ's righteousness, that is completely acceptable to God, because Jesus did turn the other cheek. Jesus can turn the other cheek. Jesus does pray for those who abuse him. Jesus kept the law perfectly. Jesus never once failed, ever. And God, out of his love and kindness, is willing to credit to your account the righteousness and the keeping of the law of Christ as though you did it. You who would rather punch out six teeth than even go the one for one. That's where you come up with that perfection. God gives you his own perfection in the righteousness of Christ so that I who was dead in trespasses and sin am now alive in Christ and I'm robed in his righteousness And when God looks at me, he no longer sees me as the natural man. He sees me as the spiritual man. Born in the first Adam, raised to newness of life in the second Adam, Jesus. So that I can stand before him with a perfection. And it's just like I kept the law. Only I got this as a free gift from Jesus at the cross. Wow.
You can't do this, people. You can't turn the other cheek. If you do, you only do it two out of three times. You might do it nine out of ten times, but by at least 19 out of 20 times, you're going to give up, you're going to pick up a stick, and you're going to wail the fire out of the guy. And then you blew it all. You blew it all. So God keeps you out of his heaven. We don't get into heaven on our own righteousness. We only get into heaven through the righteousness of Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your grace and your mercy in our lives. And this reminder that though this is so unnatural, ultimately completely unattainable, that this is exactly what it means to be new in Christ. The old ways are gone and the new has come. And this is absolutely in contrast. Light and darkness must be in contrast. This is absolutely consistent with everything your New Testament teaches. To esteem others higher than myself. To love my neighbor as myself. To prove that, I love, that we love you by loving my fellow man. Father, we need your help with this. We're not good at this. Thank you for the righteousness of Christ that saves us from our sin. And then thank you for that newness of life that begins, whereby through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can walk in obedience to Scripture. We can be filled and controlled by your Spirit and not let the the acts of the flesh rule. That this life is livable in Christ and in Christ alone. Would you keep us close to you in relationship? Fill us with your power. Fill us with your spirit. Help us to be driven to be in your word for our our daily bread. Sustain us in this walk. Lord, the light and darkness is so obviously clear. What a time to reflect your light in such a dark world. Would you help us at Fellowship Bible Church to do just that? Father, for the one who is dealing particularly with an enemy that they despised this morning, would you help them bring that hatred and bitterness and enmity under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and release it to you and allow you to accomplish your purposes and your perfect justice one day. In Jesus' name we pray, Lord. Amen.